Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Port of Basque, Newfoundland became the latest site of climate catastrophe in Canada half a year ago. Fiona, all whipping winds and towering waves, ripped through the oceanside town. Homes were destroyed, lives were threatened, and in one tragic case, a woman died. Six months on, the community is rebuilding. Some are staying in place near the water's edge, but others are moving away. A move that will shift the culture and foundations of the community, even as a changing climate means rising seas will creep closer. Later, well, yeah, things can get pretty heavy on this show, but we also know the value of a good laugh. We'll revisit an interview with comedian Chuck Nice about climate change comedy. And as spring approaches, we'll get into the minds of bees and hear how that approach can help us appreciate the importance of biodiversity and act to protect it. Welcome to What on Earth? We bring you a world of climate solutions. I'm Laura Lynch. Something like you see in a movie for a tsunami. See, there was nowhere for the big wave to go because the cove was full of water. So the big wave had to come ashore somewhere. I hit my neighbor's house and just turned it on the foundation and took my shed just like it was tissue paper. That's 73-year-old Norm Hinks of Porta Basque, Newfoundland. He's talking about the moment he watched the storm called Fiona wash through his house with his partner Thelma, the love of his life, still inside. Six months on, he's drawn to the ocean, but he struggles with being near it too. And I still got a hard job to go down there. I used to go down and have me lunch after that, but I felt like it was the closest place I was to her. Eh? We'll hear about Norm's story later on in the show, and we'll hear about how Thelma Lehman was swept out to sea. As the oceans warm due to climate change, hurricanes are bringing their fury even further north. And Fiona's devastation has served as a wake-up call for many coastal communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. It has many asking, are the changing coastlines also changing the identity and culture of a place that was quite literally built on the sea? People there are having to learn to navigate the changing climate and rebuild their lifestyles in the face of this new reality. CBC producer Caroline Hillier now with a documentary called Sea Change. Hey! <laughs> what are them uh, shooting contests? Fournette skis? One of the highlights of the Port of Basque Winter Carnival is this shooting contest. <laughs> what is this? You're keeping score? Uh, yep, keeping tally on who's hitting what. Winter carnivals are a big deal in small-town Newfoundland and Labrador. Highlights include a Miss Winter Carnival pageant, fishing derbies, snow sculpting, and shooting contests. 
all basically is, is we're just shooting skeets and it's just all like pretty well target practice and a skeet is just like a clay. The carnival in Port Basque has been on hold for a few years, but this year one woman was determined to bring it back. I'll call you and I'll pick you up after. Valerie Clark is a busy woman who knows everyone in town and probably has their phone number. Okay, very good. Yeah, yeah, I'm bye. Hello. Good morning to you. How are you? She was away in St. John's when Fiona hit and came back a week later to a whole different town. Here's where we live. This is our house in here. And we had a bit of damage. Valerie is a volunteer at the Lions Club, which has a mission to serve. The club raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to help Portabasque rebuild. But now Valerie is working on rebuilding the town's sense of community. My thoughts was the best way I think that we can help our area right now was to host our winter carnival again, to bring back winter carnival and to see uh, people smiling. That used to be uh, Ozzy Coffin's house, that one's gone. That was Vanessa's, that one's gone. That's her mother's house, her grandmother's house. Houses here are scattered along the shoreline in a haphazard but picturesque way. Your front yard could be your neighbor's backyard. Out here was another house that was uh, friends of ours. Most houses were here when the winding roads that connect them were just footpaths. The land passed down generation to generation. Barb Collier's house was right here. This is the version of Newfoundland and Labrador you see in tourism ads. The house's placement looks random, but it's actually strategic. Fishermen needed easy access to the water and their fishing stages that were dotted along the coast here before Fiona washed them away. Right out to sea, all together, right? Barb Collier's, the waves came in and it took it from underneath, right? You know, the water line is completely different from what it was, the shoreline, right? Just look at the devastation this way, like... A couple houses on this point here, they're gone. And then These houses are here. some of the 102 homes in Portabasque destroyed by Fiona, most set to be demolished in the spring. Hello. Morning. Good morning, Lionel. Lionel lives here. Okay. You want to come over, Lionel? You really do know everyone, don't you? Oh, yes. <laughs> all about wow. it. Were you home that morning? Yeah. She's yeah. with uh, CBC Radio. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you you were home when it happened, and then you had to evacuate. Oh yeah, we had to uh, go next door. Well, I didn't. We got no windows in the back of our house, so we didn't know that these houses down back had washed away. What was that moment like? <laughs> kind of shocking, actually. <laughs> uh, something I'll always remember. Uh, never thought I'd see uh, water do that kind of damage here. Yeah. I've lived there all my life, so like I mean, the waves were coming over there. They were like. Uh, just 70 feet in the air, just pounding in that, just, and it was just like, you had a job to stand up, you had to dodge debris, and on and on, so it's just crazy. It's just like, Can you imagine if we didn't have channel lid to break that water? Oh, I know, I, I, I don't know, I mean, it just came in there, just like a, a bowl, right, it just came, as it, as it kept coming in, it rose up higher and higher, and of course it got into the end of the cove, right? Well, as I keep saying, when I get, if I stay, here, I will have a bird's eye view right to North Sydney. 
because all these houses are supposed to be gone. But Lionel isn't staying. There's a for sale sign up in his window. If the house sells, and he thinks it will, he's moving out of town and away from the water. A decision made after Fiona. It came and I seen all the debris around my house and I was very thankful that I was not one of the ones that lost my house. Don't get me wrong, but it was also one of the feelings that, well, you had a survivor guilt. So we actually got out of town for three days up to our cottage. We don't normally go to our cottage in, in October, late October, but we went up and stayed just to, just to get away from all of the... All the things. I mean, we lived. We lived there. That house wasn't torn down until January. That one that Valerie showed you. Yeah. That was like, look at that every day. Every day a reminder yeah. every day to see this house. Uh, where are you going to move? Uh, Pasadena or Cornerbrook or Deer Lake, somewhere inside where there's no, where there's well, nothing get away from wind, but get away from the water. You know. Okay, well, thank you very oh, much. No Sorry, we uh, held you up from the post office. That's okay. I'll still catch the mail. He's retired. He's retired. He got lots of time. See you, my darling. See you later. While 102 houses were completely destroyed, 250 others are badly damaged but salvageable. you know, million dollar view, right? Yeah, and everybody, that's what everybody thought. Like, We're driving to where Patty Munden used to live. Her house is one of the 102 set to be demolished. So this is Patty's house? You've yeah. been in here before, have you? I've never been in, in the, actually inside of it. No, but okay. this will be the first. Patty Munden's home is a home with history. It was just a gathering spot. This was the gathering spot for, our, for the Munden household. Like, everybody came home from holidays. Where did they come? Here. Like, this was home to not only us, all, our, all of our family. Yeah. This is what happened. This is this, what you got to look at now. Wow. I've never been in your house, but this is not the time to come see, is it? Oh, no, this is not a good time, but... No. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. This was my kitchen. The waves came in my living room windows here and came out through my front door. Even if you've seen the photos and videos of the destruction, seeing it in real life is pretty jarring. There's sand and broken glass everywhere, big rocks and boulders. I am speechless. This is just... Through a wall of now broken floor-to-ceiling windows, you can see the open ocean. The sounds of outdoors are indoors. Seagulls squawking, waves rolling. A bird flies inside, then out again. Snow blankets parts of the floor. There's a mattress in the kitchen. Patty has no idea where it came from or whose it is. Oh, and poles and big pieces of wood in our living room. Yeah. Um. 
Patty is a decorator. She'd swap out her table linens and pillows every season. Today, a smattering of that decor remains. Bits of Christmas and Thanksgiving are thrown everywhere. The wallpaper and paint are peeling. A wing-back chair and couch are toppled over. And out. A picture on a wall barely hangs on a nail. We were up there, and I'm telling you, it sucked it out as fast as it came in. Yeah. Patty and her husband Rick escaped their house with their two cats just before the ocean came rushing in. The woman next door that was in our rental property, her husband was out looking at the ocean. And I was up in the front of the yard with, we were like ready to go. And I heard her screaming, but I thought she was screaming at her husband because I could see him over on the side of her house. But she was screeching at my husband. And when I looked, I saw Rick coming around the corner. And when he came around the corner, then we heard the beat and the bangs and the crashes and the whatever. And we were all up there just like, oh my God. And when all the water came up, it's like someone back there had a giant vacuum cleaner and it sucked it back out as fast as it came in. Honest, like you, you had to see it to believe it. The first wave that came before the big one had knocked him and he there was a, a, a railing, like a, the fence out there. He grabbed all to it, and it beat him up against the side of the house. So he was bruised from his ribs down to his waist. But when he got, he kept running. He didn't fall. He kept running. If he had fell, he would have been washed out. Yeah. What do you feel right now when we're standing here looking out at that water? You know, I loved, I loved the ocean. I, this, I loved it always. You could, oh, you'll never take the ocean away from me. But looking at, at this disaster right now, it's like, I, I don't know, I have no, it's cold, maybe because it's winter too. My, my mom and my sister and I, myself used to go down south with the girls all the time. The ocean was something that we always loved, right? I don't even know now if I, if I went there, if I could trust myself to go in the ocean to swim. Like... I just don't have the same it, same feeling anymore. Of course, why would you? You wouldn't. My mother's from Nova Scotia. I haven't even been on Marine Atlantic Ferry to go to Nova Scotia yet. And I know i got to face it. I, uh, it's something I can't run away from, but I will do it when the time is right. We're probably thinking that we can do something with this land and probably put a park bench or... Yeah. Put a park bench and put it just like a, a memory pinch or whatever, something, something here, so it could be utilized. Because in the summertime, it is so pretty. Patty Munden has accepted her financial compensation offer from the province. So the house and the land it's on is no longer hers. She plans to rebuild in the town's new subdivision. It's about a five-minute drive from Patty's old house. There, she'll still have a view of the water, but a pond, not the ocean. The cookie-cutter houses in this subdivision wouldn't make it in a tourism ad. But Patty and most others have accepted they can't live by the water and wouldn't want to, even if they were allowed. Everything is going to be all right. Yeah, everything will be okay. 
Patty doesn't like to think about what could have happened to her husband, Rick, because one person in Portabasque did die when she was swept out to sea. Hello. Norman, that's you, okay. Norm Hanks is staying in a senior's cottage beside the hospital. Today, rabbit stew is boiling away on the stove. A camouflage couch sits in the middle of the living room. A reality show about hunting plays on a muted TV. A single photo, a selfie, hangs on the wall. Yeah, she would never let me do a selfie. <laughs> she wouldn't? No. And that Wednesday morning, we were moose-hunting. I said, let's do a selfie. She said, okay. So I took the picture. She let me look at it. And, oh, she said, we got a smile. Take another one. That selfie was one of the last photos taken of his partner, Thelma Lehman. I heard this awful noise. And she came in. She said, you better get up. She said, uh, your small boat is gone and the bo- aft the bottom patio. And I said, come on. And I said, come on. I said, we got to get out of You go move your boat. She said, I'll be fine. And that was the last words. You go move your boat. I'll be fine. Little did we know what was in store for us. Norm went out to move his boat, just as a big wave crashed over the property, carrying sheds and parts of the house away. Thelma was still inside. Norm raced back. Hauling out her name and nothing. And we could stand up in the porch and look down in the basement through the living room and all was there was gravel and the cement wall. So there was nothing there for her to hang on to or nothing. I was in a state of shock, I guess. I don't know how long I was there. And the windows were all out. There was salt water running down through. I stood up in the porch for a while, and this big wave come right over the house, and I waited. And when it subsided, I out of the porch, in my truck, and went back by Frank Spencer's again. Thelma's body was found the next day. She was Norm's best friend, his hunting partner, and the love of his life. There'll never be another one like her. I miss her so much. It's it's hard. We've been together 22 years. We also went together in high school. Oh, really? And then you you separated and got back together? Yeah, 35 years later. Did you always think about her in those 35 years? She always asked about me, asked my sisters. And I gave her two little things when I was 16. She brought that down from the house and still at it. So, but we got along awesome. Everybody that knew us, I never heard her uh, say a bad word about anyone. She would help strangers no matter where she was at. We wore out two bikes, uh, four-wheelers. We skidooed. We ice-fished. We rabbit snared. We hunted turs out. She'd go boat with me wintertime. Only woman. If I had only only known what was going to happen, eh? 
but you don't. But I tell you, if it had happened out through the throat tonight, you wouldn't be talking to me and a good many more. I miss her so much. I'm on two different lots of pills for PTSD. I take sleeping pills nighttime. If you could only imagine my dreams, it would scare you. Yeah, I got a counselor from Stephenville. She's awesome. And the community health nurses, they're the best in the world. I feel so humble just to have them around me. Before all this, Norm had a lot of hobbies. Gunsmithing, hunting, fishing, photography, woodworking. But all his tools, along with his life savings, are gone. We were trying to get a safety deposit box, but we were on a waiting list, both banks. So we added home around $35,000. Being cooped up in this apartment isn't doing much for Norm's mental or physical health. I wish I had to vote today. Uh, I may might be just a bowl of jelly when I get out on the water, but I still want to go. And I've been even looking at boats. He used to spend most of his days out in his shed, but now... I got nothing to do and no place to go. I can't go home. I can't go to my shed. I can't do nothing. So I read a bit, watch a lot of television, and sleep a lot. He's waiting on the province's promise for financial compensation, The house was in Thelma's name, and she didn't have a will, so it's been a long and complicated process. I'm actually just an old Safi. I got a... Mom said my eyes, the bladder's too close to my eyes. You're tough, but you're a Safi. Oh, yeah. One thing Thelma said about me, to my brother, she said, I'm not ever worried about Norm when he goes off. I've never seen him in a situation where he couldn't get out of. And that's why she wasn't worried about me. And that meant a lot to me to hear her say that. But I can feel her presence here sometimes, especially in being in the mornings. I reach over just to see if she's there. At what moment do you know that she's there? Like, when do you feel her presence? When I do stuff that I used to tell her about. Like, when she done the dishes, the sink was full of water, right? I said, Jesus Christ, you're having a bath? She said, oh, I love hot water. She said, she was always cold. I was doing dishes the other day, and guess what I done? I had the sink level with water. I said, oh, yeah, you're here today, aren't you? So little things like that triggers memories, eh? Signing up to be the mayor of Portabasque is supposed to be barely a part-time job. But for Brian Button, it's become a lot more than that. No one planned this. There's no book. There's no playbook. There's nothing. So what we do is just try to to get through it together. And I think, 
you know, sometimes we got to take the time and shed a tear if it needs to. The town is rebuilding through a climate lens, so even if people want to build back by the water, they can't. Newfoundland and Labrador has been built on the fishery, and the, the fishing industry was the way of life. People built their homes on the water because they worked from the water. You know, the, the wharf, everything was by the home. Uh, they done it in their past, their, their forefathers, and then they've done it, and it carried on a tradition. So when you're trying to explain it, uh, some people look at the story and they see the visual and say, well, my God, why would anybody have their house sitting on the water? Uh, it sat there for, in some cases, over 100 years, and nothing happened. It's, weather has always been the talk in Newfoundland and Labrador. Everybody talks to weather. You go to a barbershop, you talk to weather. But now it's when there's a storm coming. It is on the street. It's at the counter. It's on the calls. It's people worrying, will I go? We have measures in place and stuff. But uh, it's, a, it's, had, it's going to have an everlasting effect for a lot of people. With rising sea levels, scientific projections show that parts of some towns in Newfoundland and Labrador will be underwater in 10 or 20 years. Coastal roads, town halls, and homes. A catchy phrase in the climate change industry is managed retreat. That is, making a plan to move those roads and buildings before they're underwater. But that's a big and expensive undertaking. And unless you've seen the devastation Fiona caused firsthand, you may not even want to move. Living on the ocean is part of the charm of coastal communities. But when you have seen it, Moving away can feel like the only solution, at least for some. Mayor Brian Button says he's been hearing from more and more people that feel that way. You know, the sea has a devastating uh, effect, obviously, what we have saw. But the majority of the people I've spoken to, and that's a lot, don't want anything to do with living by the water. And follow. No, no, it's better to wait for me. Because he won't know where it's to. I'll okay, call. Well, you just give me a call. I'll call you as soon as I'm free. Might be an hour or so now. Okay? Oh, okay, no problem. All right, sweetheart. Bye. Okay, bye. 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 Valerie Clark is putting her house up for sale and plans to move out of town. I guess we'll start concentrating on what's the next thing that we can do to continue to do things, I guess, for our community to help people and... Uh, try to keep their minds off of it, really. Well, thank you, Valerie. Thanks for being my tour guide and bringing me around and connecting me with everyone. Wonderful. Take care. Take care. Well, I'm running around. <laughs> I bet you are. Okay, thank okay, you. Okay, see ya. Norm is peeling carrots and turnip for his rabbit stew. We don't get sick, we don't get colds or flus because we're eating, you know, fairly healthy. I say we, me now, but. Norm doesn't know where he'll live, only that it won't be by the water. But when I dwell on it, it just, oh. Sometimes I wonder if life is worth it all. I'll be 74 my birthday. There's not much to look forward to. But I am going bear hunting in May. <laughs> he knows Thelma would want him to keep pushing. 
Thelma always wanted Norm to write a book about his life. And I had it started. Had it on the computer at home. And Thelma was going to go in and correct the punctuation and do it all for me. But we never got down to that. The computer is gone. So are all his old diaries and hunting logbooks. Thinking about getting a recorder, record it verbally, and perhaps get it done off after. He still wants to write that book. Thelma already picked the title, Adventures with Norm. If Norm came to this shooting contest, he'd probably have a good shot at winning. So we got one more person who could potentially win it, but he's going to have to get all three. Okay. And if he doesn't? Then Raymond Osmond wins, the guy in the camouflage all around the end there. They're all in camouflage. <laughs> <laughs> the one on the far end. Okay, okay. He, he, right now he's in the lead and uh, looks like he's got it. Okay. Oh. It's Raymond. That guy up there just won a lot of guy dancing. That's the guy he wants to talk to. <coughs> All right, now we got a pair of you. Okay. Raymond, you're the winner. I'm the winner. Okay. Old timer. Uh, I shot skeets 25 years ago for my first time. So you haven't shot skeets since then? 25 years ago. 25 years ago. I do a lot of hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. And when you came out today, did you think you were going to win, or no. did you just come out for No, just, just came out for get a door. I'm outdoor. I love the outdoors. For every person who plans to leave this town, a lot more plan to stay. It's starting to come around a bit, but there's still a lot of sad people out there. I mean, it's a good place to live. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything here, so it's a good place to live. Plan. I've noticed the tides are still... A, a bit different than they were like over the years. I live very close to the water too, and I can tell the difference in the tide when it gets high. Now it's it's usually higher now than it usually is. Yeah, I believe in climate change. I tell you that one one thing. Everything is changing. Even when I'm hunting and fishing, I, I can tell the difference. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's go see your prize. Okay. <laughs> Nobody needs that to be. Hey boys, you want to get a picture? Congratulations, there, Raymond. This is your uh, 12-gauge pump action winner of the uh, skeet shoot for Winter Carnival Port of Bass and Delta Waterfowl. Thank you very much. Changing coastlines have changed some things here, like where people will put their new homes. But it hasn't changed everything. (laughs) Perfect. For What on Earth, I'm Caroline Hillier in Port of Basque. And thank you, Caroline, as well as to John Chipman with the CBC's Audio Documentary Unit for that story. And just to note, you heard Caroline talk about this idea of managed retreat. It's one of the few solutions for vulnerable coastal communities. A company called Fundamental Inc. is working to draw up plans for people in Porto Basque who lost their homes to Fiona. Staff will talk to residents about where they want to live and how they can still be connected to the ocean and what it means to them even if they have to move further inland. The company is also talking about managed retreat with other threatened towns and villages around the province. And we're going to try to bring you more on that next week.
Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, I'll admit it, that was some pretty tough stuff we just heard. But there's hope to be found there as well in the ways people are adapting and strengthening their community. And I even heard a chuckle or two coming from some of those residents. And some say laughter is the best medicine, even for subjects as hard as this one. We wanted to revisit a story we did a few months back about a few people who think that comedy is a good prescription for facing up to climate change. Max Boykoff teaches environmental studies, and Beth Osnes teaches theater at the University of Colorado Boulder. And every year, they team up and ask their students to develop comedy sketches about climate change. Why? Well, they think humor has the power to bridge the gap between divisive opinions. Here's Boykoff. We have to be very creative in terms of thinking of ways that we can interact productively with others. And so it may not start with climate change. In fact, there are other pathways to enter into these conversations. And so in terms of meeting people where they are, we really start with audience and think about and discuss ways in which we can produce messaging and have conversations with them in ways that's meaningful and ways that's productive. The course inspired an international comedy and climate change video competition. And as for the students and graduates of the course, well, they get to perform and test their new material on a live audience at the end of the school year. The reason that a vegan diet reduces your carbon footprint so much is because all this methane comes from cows, like cow farts. But if any of you have ever tried a vegan diet, <laughs> kind of feels like you're just passing the buck. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like just walking around like crop testing for our children's future. I mean, not our children's future. I don't have kids because I care about the environment. The host of the event is stand-up comedian Chuck Nice. You may know Chuck as a co-host to astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson on Star Talk. It's a podcast that bridges the intersection between science, pop culture, and comedy. And Chuck joins me now. Hi, Chuck. Hey, hey, how are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. I'm, I'm wondering, many of our listeners would say that climate change is no laughing matter, but here you are using comedy to talk about it. What is funny about climate change? All of comedy stems from tragedy, because without that conflict, you don't have the requisite tension necessary to create a laugh. Much of laughter comes from misdirection. Um, that being said, uh, I am also sadistic. <laughs> so if I may get kind of geeky and science, science there have been several studies done that when you encounter emotions while you are learning, you retain what you are learning much better. 
So if I elicit the uh, chemical response that comes along with laughter, if I induce that while I'm giving you information, you're more likely to accept the information. And from a personal standpoint, what I've also seen is that it's very cool the way comedy disarms people. Often as a comedian, you will broach a subject that makes people very uncomfortable, but they laugh first and then they moan, which by the way, is my favorite response from an audience <laughs> is because I'm like, it's too late. I got you. I, I heard you laugh. So it's too late. Your moans mean nothing now because you have already betrayed your truest feeling, which was, hey, that was funny. But what happened was you moaned because you thought about it. So that's how you know comedy gets people thinking. Now, you partner with Max and Beth on the climate comedy competition. I'm wondering how you bring your experience into it. Well, for me, since I'm not a part of the competition, which, by the way, hurts because I am extremely competitive, what better way to compete than when you know you're going to win? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I had to say that. Um, so everything from writing to formulation of the concepts that will become the jokes uh, to perfecting the jokes to uh, working on delivery to workshopping the jokes, which we all do together. So that's kind of the process. And uh, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot. It's also it, it also allows you to be um, dangerous and safe at the same time. Yeah, which is a, which is a great place to be. Chuck, I just uh, get get a little more little more serious for a second. According to a study done by Yale University and George Mason University, uh, less yes. than, less than forty percent of people are discussing even discussing global warming and climate change. Correct. Why do you think that is? Here's the reason why I think that's happening. We have allowed people who benefit from burning fossil fuels to politicize this issue. This is a scientific issue. It is not a political issue. It does not make a difference who is in office, whether it's a Democrat, Republican, a communist or socialist or otherwise a dictator. The climate crisis will be what it will be. And so once you politicize science, it makes it difficult to talk about. Because now it's like, well, I don't want to talk about this because now I have to talk about, you know, my other political views. And what our goal is, part of the comedy, is to diffuse that so that you're not talking politics. You are indeed talking science, like you found uh, an article in Scientific American about a, a new metallurgic property for something that may change space travel. Nobody goes to a cocktail party and goes, oh, God, can you believe that guy can, talking about space travel that way? Nobody does that. So that's what we have to do with climate. There's a quote by an English poet and playwright, Christopher Fry, comedy is an escape, not from the truth, but from despair, a narrow escape into faith. How does climate comedy translate into solutions and hope? Fantastic question. Yes. The number one thing that we can do about this issue is to talk about it. And issues that are not discussed become issues that, that affect us negatively. So I call climate the toothache of our time. So if you've ever had a toothache, what happens is it's like, oh, that feels weird. Oh. And then a week later, you're like, oh, there's a little bit of pain, but I can deal with it. I'll take an aspirin. And then like two weeks later, you're like, oh my God, that really hurts. I should see a dentist. 
And then two weeks after that, you wake up and the half of your face is swollen. And now you have to have emergency surgery. And so the talking about it is the preventive dentistry that stops the toothache from becoming half of your face looking like, you know, Quasimodo. (laughs) There's a difference, though. I mean, I want to go and see a climate comedy show. I do not want to go to the dentist. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> I mean, who knows? Maybe a dentist would be really funny. I mean, that, you know, maybe maybe that's my next uh, conquest. Maybe that's it. To make dentistry funny. But yeah, um, you know, we had a show where top to bottom, all climate, all climate, all comedy, and only one third of the audience knew that they were going to a climate comedy show, which I was thrilled about because afterwards, I can't tell you the number of people who came up to me afterwards and they were like, yo, this was great. I really learned something. Hey, do you have any information on how I can, is there an organization I can join it? And and we did. And so it was just phenomenal. People, I call it um, the climate noise. There's a lot of climate noise and there's a lot of disaster porn. I call it disaster porn because it's what you see in the news. It's the flood, the drought, the fire, the storm, the hurricane. But what they never do is they never tell you, oh, by the way, this is because we're burning fossil fuels. That's the number one cause of, of what we're going through. That's they, they don't make that association. Why? Because they feel as though that's political. Why? Because the people who burn fossil fuels made it political. Okay. That's number one. The second thing they don't do is uh, tell you about mitigation. But you do hear about resilience. Isn't it funny how we hear about resilience, but not mitigation? Why? Because resilience means, uh, you know, commerce. Whereas mitigation means the restricting of commerce. And so greed is a big part of uh, the climate discussion. It's curious. I'm going to gently, just gently push back at you on that, because I do think that conversation is changing a bit, um, and it may be more so here in Canada than in the United States. But I do see a lot more media coverage actually making that explicit link and talking about that. Have you noticed a shift in that over, over time? Yes, I have. I agree with you, um, and I accept her pushback. It is much better than it was, um, but when you're climbing out of a hole, uh, the fact that you're only 10 feet underground as opposed to 30 feet underground is not the kind of progress that you would tout as successful. Okay. Um, What advice would you give to somebody who wants to venture into climate comedy? One, speak to a therapist because there is something (laughs) wrong with you. (laughs) No, um, listen, I think it's a a great thing for anyone to do. It may be a tough haul because you're starting off in comedy (laughs) with a very, very heavy subject. Uh, I would say start with comedy first and then find a way to add uh, climate to your material. Um, But what I would say to everyone, no matter who you are, that there is a way and a place for you in this solution. This is a solution that is, one, all hands, two, all of humanity, and three, global. And those are all, that sounds redundant, but it's not, because it's very much contingent upon where you are in the world. And where we are in the world gives us, one, more responsibility because we have more power. And the only way that we can make this issue move forward the way it should is by pressing 
a two-prong approach, which is our political leaders uh, making them do the right thing and our leaders of industry making them do the right thing. And then the third thing we can do, honestly, is vote with your dollars, you know. Right. Put your put your money, so to speak, where your put, mouth is. That's it. Put your money where your mouth is or where your motives are. I just want to ask you about something Max Boykoff said. He, he stressed the importance of meeting people where they are. What does that mean to you? One, climate is an issue that affects everyone in some way. So the first thing I say is don't talk to people in New York about polar bears because they don't care. I mean, honestly, there is you get on the subway at five o'clock in New York City. Not one person is thinking about a polar bear. OK, mm-hmm. but. Um, they may be thinking about environmental justice. They may be thinking about energy costs. They may be thinking about jobs. All of these things are related to climate. Um, meet people where they are in terms of the issue, number one. Number two, meet people where they are in terms of what they are willing to talk about, which is what makes comedy so great. Everybody is willing to laugh. So if you can get them laughing, the conversation has started. And so that's why I think comedy is so important. But uh, without comedy, then find out what it is that interests someone. Okay, Chuck, can you do me a favor? Yeah. Okay, can you tell me your favorite climate change joke? Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Wow! Okay, it's one I wrote. Sometimes people can seem self-righteous when they are championing the cause of climate change. Like whenever I see a grown man in a suit with a briefcase in New York City on a skateboard, (laughs) I'm like, is that really an eco-conscious climate warrior (laughs) or just some dude with 12 DUIs? (laughs) Good line, Jack. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Chuck, thank so, you. Thank you so much for giving us both a lot to think about and a laugh, because we all need a laugh. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, Chuck, that was just terrific. Thank you. Great joke. Uh, Great joke. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, one of the later ones that I've written. So I'm glad I had a chance to... I'm glad you laughed, because that yeah, would have been awkward. That would have been very awkward. <laughs> yeah, and then I would have been like, oh, did I write that? I meant Jerry Steinfeld wrote that. <laughs> Yep, Chuck Nice, one of a kind, and he will be emceeing this year's climate comedy show on April the 21st in New York City. You can visit insidethegreenhouse.org to see past winners of the International Climate Comedy Video Competition. And if you're looking to try your hand at climate change comedy yourself, applications for next year's competition open in July. Start working on those submissions. There's one more playful approach to climate solutions we wanted to revisit this week as we head towards spring. It's a different way of thinking about biodiversity and why we need to protect it. 
Hi, I'm Kyle Babiosh. I'm Anishinaabe, a member of Misagi First Nation, and I'm currently an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology and an indigenous scholar in the Faculty of Agricultural and Food Sciences at the University of Manitoba. Kyle Babiwash loves bees, and with some bee species on the decline in Canada, he says the key to helping humans truly understand what bees are going through is storytelling. One of the things we naturally go to is to say, oh, bees are important for one in every three bites, or bees pollinate up to 80 to 90% of flowers globally. Um, Yes, that's all important, but again, that's very human-centric. What I like to think about is, you know, think about your own life in terms of you like to eat a diversity of food. You don't like to eat the same meal every week. So you can imagine as we start to homogenize and simplify the landscape, we're making the diet, the life of a bee that much more boring. So you can hear how Kyle Bobbywash really puts himself inside the mind of the bee. And he's not just injecting passion and enthusiasm into his stories. A little bit of his own cultural background creeps in there too. You know, in Anishinaabe culture, we have these concepts like Minobamatsuin, uh, which are, you know, living the good life. And how can we conceive or how can we think of a bee living a good life in a really static, homogenized, simplified environment? Right? If there's only two or three flowers for that bee to um, visit and, you know, those flowers are not super abundant, that's a struggle for that particular bee. So, you know, relating those needs of both people with the needs of insects and trying to get people to understand that these organisms also deserve a good life, I think, is a way potentially to allow us to think about what is our responsibilities towards all these species out in the environment and what do we need to do to make sure that we're allowing them themselves to uh, lead a good life. He says scientists need to make a compelling argument for protecting biodiversity. And we can only do that by really extolling the virtues, telling about the scary things, telling about the exciting things, and telling everybody else about all those really sweet, cute things uh, that you might see in the environment, in our landscapes. Hmm, bees. Sweet, cute things. I'm trying to think about them myself, although... I do wonder at the natural marvels they pull off just by living their lives. So I think he's on to something about this, about telling stories about animals. I mean, we all do it with our domesticated animals like dogs and cats. They're almost like little humans to us. So I can see the point of what he's doing. And hey, we're all about storytelling too. So uh, if any of you out there have any uh, great storytelling ideas about wildlife, let us know. You can email us at earth at cbc.ca. Now here's a quick look at other climate stories in the news. A new report from the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment shows that climate litigation is growing in Europe at an unprecedented rate. And the authors say that cases against government and corporations have a long history of influencing climate policy. They expect the trend to grow as people push to advance more ambitious climate legislation. And this week, BC and Ottawa approved a second liquefied natural gas terminal to be built on the province's north coast. Cedar LNG is co-owned by the Heisler Nation and Pembina Pipeline Corporation. It's the largest infrastructure project in Canada to have majority Indigenous ownership. 
The $3 billion project aims to begin shipping liquefied natural gas to Asia by 2027. But it must comply with a series of strict conditions to keep it in line with climate goals. And just a few days ago, U.S. President Joe Biden approved a major oil drilling project in Alaska. The $8 billion U.S. Willow project could produce more than 600 million barrels of crude in the next 30 years. At the same time, Biden banned future oil leasing in some parts of the U.S. Arctic Ocean and on Alaska's North Slope. And finally, a group of six Pacific Island nations on the front lines of climate change recently gathered in Vanuatu. The host country was in a state of emergency after being hit by two cyclones and an earthquake within the space of 48 hours. That backdrop made their call to create a fossil fuel-free Pacific even more compelling. They also want the world to support a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. Besides Vanuatu, the group includes Fiji, Tonga, Tuvalu, the Solomon Islands and Niue. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. And speaking of Vanuatu, coming up next week on our program, we've talked a lot more on this show about the Atlantic hurricane season and its effects on eastern Canada and the Caribbean. But there's another season we don't hear about quite as much, and I'm talking about the South Pacific cyclone season. It's happening right now. And in Vanuatu, women are often disproportionately affected. We are a patriarchal society, which means women and girls basically do not inherit land, do not have a voice in places where decision makings are made in the community level and couldn't contribute because the places are only meant for men leaders and male headed household. But a group of women in Vanuatu is working to change the dynamic by studying weather patterns and providing early warning messages to other women across the country. Next week, we hear how the Women's Weather Network is taking emergency response to extreme weather into its own hands. You can email us about anything you hear on the show, you know that, but there is something we'd especially like to hear about. We are looking for climate heroes. We have received some amazing nominations, but there's still time to nominate someone you know. Tell us about your personal climate champion. Is there someone in your life who's gone the extra mile or kilometer to protect the planet? then nominate your community climate champion. We want to know how they're making a difference and inspiring you. Send us an email, earth at cbc.ca, and tell us all about the climate hero in your community. And that is all for us this week. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producer Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. And this week, Rachel Sanders is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.